Welcome back to Shrinking It Down, Mental Health Made Simple. I'm Jean Varesen. I'm Khadija Booth-Watkins. And we want to welcome you all back to the beginning of our fifth season. Can't believe it. And today, um, we're going to be doing something like my favorite, one of my favorite shows, Mythbusters. But Is we're that gonna a real be... show? Are you kidding? You've never seen, you've never seen Mythbusters? I have not. <laughs> oh, you've got to see it with your kid. It's an amazing, it's an amazing show. It's, you can, it was on for years and years. I'll check it out. I'll check it out. Oh, these guys, we, these guys were, um, uh, they worked for the film industry and um, at least one of them did. Uh, and they, um, th you know, myths of about all kinds of things like, Things that explode can this can they create a catapult <laughs> that can can go so far and you know and they they actually it actually is they they you know deal with scientific principles and we prove or disprove them. It sounds you know it sounds vaguely familiar. It sounds like that old show I used to watch, Three Two One Contact, but maybe maybe there was a myth mythbuster element to that show, but it's, it's vaguely coming back to me. Yeah. So we'll talk about that, but first let's, let's check in with each other. How have you been Khadija? I survived the summer, you know, it's, it was a beautiful summer. I even got to do some travel, um, which was nice. Um, you know, getting settled back into the kind of start of our academic year work-wise and with my kids, you know, went smoothly. So I'm, and I'm thankful Like we stayed healthy throughout, you know, we got to spend some time with family and, and friends in a safe way. Uh, so I'm thankful about how the, 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 the year has kind of progressed. What's, what's it been like for you? Oh, it's been, uh, it's been busy. Um, I got to spend a fair amount of time with family, uh, on vacation, which was really, really good. Um, uh, uh, I have my eighth grandchild, uh, Edda May, uh, who was born on the 15th, the day after my puppy's first birthday. Mishka was one year old on the 14th. And, um, so now I have a new grandchild. And so that's, that's kind of exciting. And, um, uh, busy out in the garden. It's been an interesting and a difficult year for gardening. Very hot at times and very rainy. So, you know, it's gardening always makes me feel like I'm getting in touch with, uh, with the elements and I am and fighting off critters. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so literally um, in touch, <laughs> literally in touch. Right. Uh, Yep. So my puppy turned a year and, um, she's learned a lot of tricks. I, yesterday was a, this weekend was a big, big weekend because I taught her how to catch a Frisbee. You know, that's a little things like that. that kind of like <laughs> make me happy. <laughs> so let's get to it. Uh, what are some myths we want to bust? You know, as we are, getting settled back in and and really just even just to briefly reflect reflect over the year there there's so much stigma that that surrounded mental health 
but it was nice that we were able to talk more about it. People were talking more about it openly and freely. Um, but there's there's still so much stigma. There are so many of these kind of outdated ways of thinking um, that I think it's great for us to take an opportunity to to dispel some of these myths and, and clear up some of these misconceptions. And I think a great place to start is myths related to suicide since we are in Suicide Prevention Awareness Month. So any, do you wanna bust the myth around suicide, Gene? Well, I think the myth is really that if you, um, speaking of conversations, that if you ask about suicide, that you're actually going to uh, cause your child to, to think or act in suicidal ways. And, and it's really not true, it's just the opposite. Um, it, it turns out that um, about one in six high school kids will be thinking seriously about suicide. And frankly, for all the listeners, I'm sure almost everyone out there has thought about something like that, about just throwing it all, you know, throwing in the towel. Um, so um, thinking about suicide is not abnormal, and it doesn't mean that one is going to actually do something. But it's really important... And, for parents to have conversations about it. So if you notice that, you, that, your, that your kid has changed in their behavior, that they've become more depressed or more stressed out, more anxious, um, ask them, have you ever had thoughts of harming yourself? Have you ever had thoughts about taking your life? Um, open up the door, open up the conversation. It turns out that you don't, that it's just the opposite of the myth that you're gonna actually cause them to think or feel suicidal, but they'll actually be relieved to, to hear about it if they do have thoughts about it. And then go dive a little deeper. You know, besides the thoughts, do you have any intention of hurting yourself? Or do you have any plans to hurt yourself? Well, tell me about this. Um, uh, it, 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 it's not only reassuring, but it opens the door to these deeper conversations and it helps us know where, where our kids are coming from. And if they are feeling desperate, then we can, we can help them in, in so many different ways. You know, um, and if they need a, a mental health evaluation, uh, it's probably one of the best things we can do to help them out. But you hear so often that if I ask about suicide, I'm going to put those thoughts in their head and the likelihood that they were never thinking about it um, makes parents nervous that just having the conversation in and of itself is going to create a suicidal child, which, you know, just to reiterate the importance of having these conversations regularly and opening up a platform and, and taking some of the burden off of what kids tend to hold on to and, and just hold on to these heavy burdens in such secrecy yes. um, because they're, they're afraid to share and they don't know how to share. Right. And, and it, it, it also shows that the parent is open to listening and to um, caring and to uh, trying to find out, you know, uh, again, it's, it's, it's the thing, the motto of the Clay Center is, uh, you know, uh, when to worry, uh, what to do. So we need to know whether we need to be worried and then we need to know what to do about it. And there's no better way than having these conversations. So uh, let me ask you, uh, 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 about a myth. Um, so a child with a psychiatric disorder is damaged for life and they're never going to recover. And that's actually a scary thought. Um, and 
just so happy that it's a myth because it, it is. A, a child diagnosed with a psychiatric disorder can live a happy, healthy life. It does not determine their future, um, a diagnosis uh, of, of mental illness, which, which is incredibly important to be able to support kids and still hope um, and, and, and encourage them to go out and do all the great things that they're destined to do. Um, you know, a psychiatric diagnosis is like any other medical diagnosis. There are some diagnoses that are, are made during, you know, the period of childhood and adolescence that requires a single episode of treatment and, and then that's it. But then there's some that require more lifelong and chronic treatment. But again, it doesn't determine their, their lifelong destiny, just like if we were to have a kid who is diagnosed with childhood diabetes. Yes, they have to take care of themselves. Yes, they have to, you know, watch their diet and watch their manage their weight and make sure that they're diligent about exercise and maybe take a medication to manage their diabetes, you know, for lifelong, but they still live a, a happy, healthy, fulfilled life. Um, and I think that is important to, to focus on that happy, healthy, fulfilled life aspect of, of treatment, um, which is what we're seeking to achieve when we, we seek and uh, when we engage in treatment with our kids. So I loved your analogy about diabetes because, you know, everybody's got something. Uh, everybody, we all have something. <laughs> we, all, we, we all have something. And actually, one in four individuals will have some kind of a psychiatric disorder during the course of their life. But that doesn't mean, you know, one in four people are going to be you know, and seriously, uh, you know, in, in dire straits. I mean, for the listeners, uh, take a look at our our film on uh, Mark Vonnegut, you know, Mark Vonnegut and and bipolar disorder in the arts, because what Mark was diagnosed incorrectly with schizophrenia, but he did have a serious psychiatric disorder, and as he points out, you know, uh, he wrote a couple books went to Harvard Medical School, and he's a practicing pediatrician. And that doesn't mean that everybody's going to go to Harvard. Um, I got rejected, uh, but that's fine. <laughs> you know, but but you can do something with your life no matter what what you've got. And, it, and it's similar to the myth around asking about suicide and the, the, the actual truth about it is that it allows for a conversation and it gives a lot of relief to the kids. Similarly, you know, we have a lot of stigma and there's a lot of efforts often put towards not diagnosing and, and not labeling, which really the, the goal should be early identification and early, early, you know, prevention and engagement and treatment, which will lend to the likelihood of, again, this healthy, happy, fulfilled life, as opposed to, um, not acknowledging what exists and being able to engage in a treatment plan that is that can provide relief and provide the tools and strategies that a kid would need to kind of carry through and have a life um, that is meaningful. Um, so, so really, identification and early intervention is is key, and that can only happen if we are not, you know, living it in fear of you know stunting someone's life with a diagnosis. Uh, well, and you know, some of our, some of our greatest um, artists, writers, composers, presidents have had psychiatric disorders. I mean, Abraham Lincoln was depressed. You know, Winston Churchill 
had a mood disorder. Um, Vincent van Gogh, Beethoven, uh, you name it. I mean, and and they uh, were incredibly creative. So um, uh, it 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 um, it's just another kind of problem that we as human beings have to deal with. Which is a great segue into the myth around depression and the treatment of depression for young people. Well, the myth is is that is that depression in young people is impossible to treat. Or difficult, and it's it's a myth uh, because it turns out that well, as many as twenty percent of of kids will have a, a depressive disorder of of one kind or another, and five percent at any one point in time. But you know, two out of three uh, have are very responsive to treatment, and this treatment can be a combination of psychotherapy. Uh, various different kinds of therapies like cognitive behavior therapy, family therapy, uh, medications, and also things like meditation uh, and and, and uh, uh, good diet, uh, exercise. I mean, there's a lot of uh, ways that we could actually really help young people with depression, and it's extraordinarily responsive. You know, I mean, if, if, if 60 or 70 percent... Uh, of our young people that have depression or treated, it's about as good as it gets in medicine. I mean, a, 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 a positive response to treatment that's in the range of 60 to 70%, you know, it's pretty darn good. Yeah, that's huge. Um, and, and not treating depression in kids and adolescents has its own kind of bag of, uh, it's its own bag of rocks that we have that one would have to carry in terms of just the the lack of academic achievement and and social um, connection and relationships that that suffer when kids are are depressed. Um, and it's great to know that there is such a high rate of responsiveness to the treatment. Yeah, and 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 like many psychiatric problems, uh, the more episodes you have, the more you get. So the earlier we we start, the better. And uh, it turns out that depression is the number one global burden of illness in the world, which means more people are depressed and that has a bigger toll on the economy and on social uh, and interpersonal life than any other illness. So it's really a big problem and we need to start young. Let me give you a myth um, for all of our parents out there. Bad parenting causes psychiatric disorders. You know, and specifically, <laughs> moms are always blamed for everything. You know, especially that bad parenting, you know, the, the what is it, the icebox mother back in the day from the refrigerator. The refrigerator, the, yes, because yeah. my grandmother called it an icebox. But yes, the refrigerator <laughs> mom. Um, but, you know, parents want what's best for their kid. But, you know, by far and large, that is true of most parents and they do the best that they can with the knowledge and the resources that they have. And, and yes, um, environment plays a role with respect to kids and, and how they, they fare and, and parental relationships play a role as well. So we can't pretend they don't matter and they, they don't uh, have a place and a space to talk about uh, the role in the life of a kid, but their bad parenting just does not cause psychiatric disorders. It is definitely a myth. 
And I just think, you know, again, it just creates another layer and barrier to accessing care because parents are afraid of being blamed for their, their, what their child is struggling with. So, you know, part of sometimes what we hear and see is they try to fix it. They try to, you know, go online and all of these other avenues prior to really seeking the help that they need and maybe need it for weeks, months or, or years prior because of just the fear and, and surrounding being judged and criticized and blamed when they walk into an office. And so just know we're not blaming parents uh, for, for kids' psychiatric disorders. And they feel terribly guilty. I mean, parents being a parent, uh, myself and a grandparent now, I mean, there's there's no way that I'm not going to feel guilty if, if my kid has a problem. I mean, and I'm going to kind of look at what I did to kind of either, you know, cause it or make it, make it, make it bad. It's just a natural thing to do, but we don't want to reinforce it by, by, you know, by blaming them about it. Um, I think what we want to do is to help them feel that they can have a supportive, important role in, um, in helping their kids, uh, Get, get better for whatever problems they may have. It's, it's another one of those outdated kind of ways of thinking that definitely is not the way that we approach working with kids and families today. And, and sometimes we do do things that is not a match for what our kid needs. And, and that is what, you know, we help parents with, give them guidance and, and support to do things that are kind of in line with what their kid needs in the moment. So let's look at some other myths. Um, what about, and this is a really good one, especially being in this remote virtual world, um, the myths around violent video games causing violent behavior in kids. Oh, that's a good one. Um, uh, I get asked that all the time and I've really read a lot of the literature. The research shows that violent games do not cause violent behavior period. Now, and in fact, in most cases, the research is, 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 uh, is, is not even correlated with, with violent behavior. Um, what is true is that if a child, particularly a boy, is violent, aggressive, oppositional um, uh, to begin with, which is about 5%, then they will be overstimulated by aggressive games. Uh, and those kinds of kids uh, uh, need to be um, monitored and we have to be careful about, about what they see. Um, you know, we did a study at Mass General of over 500 middle school kids and what they were playing. And we did find that about 5% of boys um, uh, did increase their aggression. And it was also dependent upon the amount of time that they, that they um, uh, watched the videos. We also found that uh, about 5% of girls got depressed uh, the, the more they played video games. Uh, I think what's most important, and also, you know, we've seen all kinds of garbage uh, opinions, like, you know, Harris and Klebold, who, were, who shot him up at Columbine, caused, you know, they were caused... It was because they watched Halo. Well, watching a bug getting shot up on a video game didn't cause them to do the terrorist act. Um, 
and, and, and in fact, a lot of, a lot of mass shootings are, you know, it's easy to blame, you know, violent video games or violent uh, movies or TV. What we do know about violence is, is that violence to the self, there's a copycat phenomenon. So when kids, when adolescents in particular, um, hear about a suicide, a real one, or a celebrity like Kurt Cobain or Robin Williams or a fictitious one, that there's a copycat phenomena for about two weeks in which, in which uh, some adolescents will uh, try to take their own lives. And that's been, that's been replicated by a lot of sound research and it's actually uh, uh, reinforced the way news reporting is made about, about suicides. But um, I think, I think the, the best advice for parents is to know what your kids are playing, which about, in our study, about 95% of kids did not, parents did not know. Um, uh, know what your kids are playing. Know if it's appropriate because you're the experts about your kids. If your kid is shy, is frightened, is, is, is aggressive, you know, tailor what they play to um, who the kid is and use resources such as commonsensemedia.org, which actually reviews video games and movies and television shows and all sorts of media to um, help determine whether or not it's appropriate for your child. In this virtual world that we're in now, it is so helpful, especially as a parent, to, to know what resources are out there to help us kind of navigate how to tailor these video games and and what they're watching to make sure that it's a, it's a match for for our kid their their temperament their their age and just what they can tolerate um because it can be confusing it can it could also be a way for some very shy kids to bond with each other um around a game and whether it's a violent whether it's a video game that's violent or whether it's dungeons and dragons or whether it's watching a, a video together um you know uh, we were worried about um, the radio when it first came out. I mean, my, my grandfather told my my when my, my my mom was a young kid and the radio was being played. He said, "Like you want to listen to class, you want to listen to music, go to Carnegie Hall." Or remember when Bye Bye Birdie? They were worried about the telephone and how it was going to ruin kids' lives. When Little Caesar came out, starring Jimmy Cagney. There was there were there were there was a motion to censor that movie because they thought it was going to turn kids into mobsters. Well, Jimmy Ca Little Caesar is actually milk toast compared to what kids are watching on television today. So, what we do need to do though is we do need to harness the media, know what our kids are doing with it, and do some good sound research on outcomes. Uh, and learn from that research. And I think that was, that's the best medicine for us about this. So let me give you a myth. Um, uh, okay, if your child has an anxiety disorder or a problem with anxiety, the best thing you could do to help them to eliminate their stress and the stressful situations is to kind of reassure them that everything is okay and remove the sources of anxiety. Okay, so you want to give me a hard one. Thank you. <laughs> uh, you know, and this is like, 
everything we've talked about has been so salient to the time that we're in. Um, and this is another one, especially, you know, still being in the middle of the, the pandemic, going back to school and, and kids being anxious. Um, and it's the natural inclination as a, as a caregiver and someone who, um, you know, cares about a kid to do whatever you can to, to, to relieve their stress and distress. However, um, treating kids as though they're fragile does not provide them the confidence they need to confront their anxiety. Uh, anxiety is a natural part of life. It, it, it allows us to rise to the occasion in times of stress. Um, it allows us to know when we're in danger. And so we have to, um, instead of trying to alleviate stress for them, model for them how to tolerate stress and how to manage stress and how to cope with stress. Um, and unfortunately, if we alleviate stress and anxiety from them and everything that causes them stress and anxiety, it doesn't allow them the practice that they need to, to, to manage these situations um, in a way that is productive for them, that's comfortable for them, um, and so that they feel confident doing it when you're not there, which is, which is really important as we try to build um, resilience in these kids, allowing them to problem solve on their own, allowing them to um, make mistakes, uh, allowing them to, to be part of um, the solution. And, and when we create this blank slate of safety with you know, padded walls and floors, they just don't have an opportunity to, to learn um, these necessary skills to be out in a world that is anxiety provoking. And, you know, a certain amount of anxiety actually increases, uh, improves performance. I mean, think of athletes, actors, um, performers of all kinds that get butterflies in their stomach and get anxious before performance. So a certain amount of anxiety actually helps performance. But when you reach a certain peak of anxiety, the performance decreases. Um, so, you know... Uh, I've known a lot of actors uh, in in my life, and 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 seasoned actors. Um, uh, I remember when I was fortunate enough to be in this in this uh, show, Brains on Trial, that was an, uh, uh, with Alan Alda, uh, and I wasn't an actor, but but you know I I was playing a child psychiatrist, which actually wasn't a hard thing to do, uh, but but it, you know. I remember him pacing around the room before he was going on. And I talked to the, I said to the producer, like, what's going on? He said, oh, he's just a little anxious <laughs> and he's dealing with it. I mean, this is one of the greatest actors around. And there he is working himself up and, and, you know, just leave him alone. But he was preparing himself. So it's somewhat useful in some ways. It's, it's, it's a useful, natural um, instinct that we have. It's the fight or flight. It, it helps us to survive and, and, and perform when we need to perform. Um, and, and despite the best of intentions, when we create this sterile environment, um, we inadvertently actually increase anxiety for kids uh, through this excessive reassurance and shielding, uh, shielding of them from, from things that are anxiety provoking. Um, so we have to be mindful um, of that. Although, again, it, it is the it's the the natural response uh, to to try to 
keep them safe and protected and not to see any harm or distress come to them, but it really does do the opposite when we're, we're thinking about someone who's anxiety, when we over reassure and over accommodate. So you got a myth for me? Oh, I, I'm sure the list goes on. Hold on. Um, so let's talk about the myth um, related to the COVID-19 pandemic and the lack of being in school causing irreversible losses in social emotional development. One of your favorite things to talk about. Well, right. that's social emotional learning, but right. similar. <laughs> well, you know, we can't deny that the pandemic has caused um, a delay in all sorts of learning. Um, uh, and and, and you know, the silver lining of COVID is that actually people are paying more attention now to social emotional learning than ever before. Um, and frankly, we should have a social emotional learning. And what that means is awareness of oneself, awareness of others, uh, proper decision-making, um, uh, empathy, uh, consideration of other people's feelings, um, uh, uh, learning how, you know, learning basically how to have relationships and be a part of, 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 of group. Uh, and, um, the, the good, the, the good news is, is that, um, whether it's social emotional learning or academics or, uh, any other delays is that development is never lost. It's just set back a little bit. And we have to remember that, you know, this brain of ours has 100 billion neurons, each with 10,000 connections. Um, and there is ample opportunities for that brain to catch up and to make up for lost time. Uh, and um, what's important, I think, for us as, uh, as, Health, as healthcare providers, but also for parents, teachers, and all caregivers, is to monitor what's been delayed uh, and not think of it as a loss, but think of it as something that needs to be made up, whether it's social, emotional, behavioral, academic, uh, or athletic, whether some of the athletic skills have gotten rusty, okay? So we give them an opportunity to kind of catch up. And there's always that possibility. It's just so reassuring as we're talking about needing a little bit of re a little bit of reassurance is okay, and that that is reassuring to know that these are just delays that can be um, addressed and caught up once we kind of return to what will be the new normal, I guess. Because I won't say return to normal, because I don't think normal will ever be what we return to, but. So let me let's just do one more, and and I'll give it I'll give you this myth um, to bust. Um, if you eat right, exercise, have a healthy lifestyle, your anxiety and depression will just go away. <laughs> and those things are important for sure to maintaining a healthy lifestyle but they're pieces and and i and i find this one incredibly damaging because it it's invalidating to someone's struggle who probably is eating right and living a healthy lifestyle but yet still depressed or anxious and so it makes people feel 
you know, what am I doing wrong? What's wrong with me as opposed to, oh, okay, so these pieces aren't working or these pieces aren't enough and I need something else or something in addition. And, and, and again, it, this is another thing that prevents people or delays people from getting the treatment that they need um, in a timely manner. Uh, again, it, this, it's necessary to have a healthy diet and good sleep hygiene to, to manage depression and anxiety, but sometimes it's just not in and of itself sufficient to cure um, someone who has uh, you know, significant depression or significant anxiety. Um, and that really is just the answer. <laughs> you know, sometimes we need like diet and going back to diabetes, diet and exercise sometimes is just not enough. Sometimes your body's not producing enough insulin. And so you need the insulin in addition to diet and exercise. Yeah. Um, and I think that really is just, again, going back to thinking about mental health and mental illness, as you would any other medical condition where there's a, there's a, a continuum or a spectrum as to where the where things are, whether it's moderate, mild, severe, and sometimes in different cases, you know, a different approach is needed. So if you have a severe depression, you you're gonna need more than just diet and exercise and sleep. Um, just like if you have a you know insulin resistant diabetes. I think you said it all. So um, uh, I'm sure there are more myths, and for those of you out there, if you have if you have certain beliefs that you think are myths or you want to know, want us to help bust them, you know, just let us know. But as we, as we uh, often do, and we will start this year, let's just end by uh, talking about the news. What, what occurred to you, the news this week, Khadija, that struck your fancy or paid, you know, made you pay attention? So what struck me in the news this week was all of the major events related to um, all of the natural disasters and how closely related, dare I say, they are to climate change and the lack of just enough discussion around it. Um, that was the most striking to me. And, and even I think I listened to something, maybe it was an NPR piece or something to that effect as well this weekend where, you know, there's with the hurricanes and the flooding and the fires, it, it really, uh, you know, a lot of it can really be traced to climate change and just the, the omission of that fact and encouragement of, uh, of our role in managing um, that piece or, or trying to, to manage or, or uh, contribute to improving it just seems strange. <laughs> so it just had me thinking, you know, just, you know, how much can be said by not saying anything at all. Um, so that, that's, that's where I, that's what was struck me most, but how about you? What, what have you seen in the news? I've been not watching as much news as I usually do though. I must admit. Oh, I'm, I'm addicted. Uh, so one thing that occurs to me is uh, that there's a theme is what our role uh, is in relationship uh, to events that are going on around the planet. Uh, the pulling out of Afghanistan at 
what our obligations are to the folks who've helped us and served us, uh, to the military, um, despite tragic errors, uh, the military and the police are to be applauded for the work that they do. That's not to say that they don't deserve to be looked at critically, and in turn, and in fact, they do. But I think that um, you know our president is is uh, addressing a bunch of world issues, as is the Secretary of State, and um, they're challenging. But what what I wonder about is how can we create um, a global village in which we actually do help ourselves. You know, one, one of the dilemmas that came up to me this week was when the FDA was deliberating about whether everybody should get a booster. Uh, and one consideration was, uh, well, it would probably help, but what about the folks around the world that haven't had a single vaccine? And is giving a booster taking away a primary uh, protection against a pandemic that's global? I just think it's a it it speaks volumes to me that we can be thinking in that way and about uh, what's affecting us all. So it's kind of related to your thoughts about climate change. Uh, but I think that it's uh, also applicable to the pandemic and to um, strife and competition and and the world economy. When you, when you said global village, the first thing I thought about was the vaccination process and how we, we, we just won't be able to function globally if we are doing this in a, in a way that is so siloed um, because you know the air is the same and people are traveling. And so a global village response is really what's needed. Um, on so many of these issues, really, but that was the one that came to mind when you mentioned Global Village. So I'll, I'll just end by saying, you know, we're all in this together and uh, hashtag we can manage this, which is <laughs> the Clay Center's uh, hashtag. Um, uh, we can manage this. Uh, it's just a matter of uh, finding ways of, of doing it. So anyway, thanks a lot for listening, everybody. And if you want to... Um, uh, write in questions, comments, have something to add, or you want to tell us what you'd like to hear about this new season, we're always happy to hear from it. Uh, I hope that uh, our conversation will help you have yours. I'm Jean Baresi. And I'm Khadija Boothwalking.